The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with a Slate spoiler special podcast on The Watchmen. Joining me is Dan Coyce, a newly expatriated to D.C. contributor to New York Magazine. Hi, Dan. Hey, Dana. And, okay, we've got lots to say about this this movie and book and the whole Watchmen phenomenon, so let's get going. But first of all, we should we should warn, just in case anyone's forgotten that a spoiler special is a spoiler special, be warned, we will be giving away major plot points from a, a very twisty plot. So if you're planning to see the movie, have not read the book, and don't want to know what happens, then tune out now and tune in again after you've seen it. But be sure to tune in again after you've seen it. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah, download us now and listen on the way home from the movie. So... Dan, I'm going to let you, because you're the graphic novel guy, and know a little bit more about the history of this, this novel than I do, although I read it. I just finished it this morning, actually. It's quite, quite something. But um, talk, can you talk a little bit about the project of Watchmen, uh, how long it's been in the works, what kind of a place this story holds in the history of graphic novels? Um, it was originally an eight-book, an eight-comic series written by Alan Moore and illustrated by Dave Gibbons. It came out in 1985 and is widely considered a pretty seminal work in comics history for the way that it darkened superheroes in a way that they never had been before. It took the sort of traditional superhero tropes and put them into a real-world, real-life setting and get, and made those stories dark and brutal in a way that comics had not done before. Which um, we're so used mu- to now, right? The dark which we're so used to now, right. And so you can trace everything from... You know, the, from Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight to um, the current sort of super dark trends in actual comic books to this one book, which for good or ill is r- responsible for the darkening of the superhero palette. Uh, you know, Spider-Man becomes moody and, and rough in Spider-Man 3 basically because of this book. At the time, it was widely considered to be a masterpiece and i think for many comics fans it still is despite the way that the things that it accomplished were somewhat co-opted by some lesser works at later times uh the struggle to make it a movie has been a really really long one um compounded in many ways by the fact that alan moore the guy who wrote it has been ferociously anti-cinematic adaptation of his work for years um, he had and, no part in any of the development of movie scripts over the 20 correct. years he has been. completely washed his hands of this and all other movie projects based on his books um, other than to uh, shit talk them in print he has not contributed in any way to this movie and in fact he handed over his check for the movie rights to the the book's illustrator dave gibbons And many, many directors and screenwriters have been attached to this. Uh, For one very brief moment, about five years ago, uh, they were actually doing pre-production in Eastern Europe for a version that Paul Greengrass was going to direct, um, which would have been very different from this version. Do you know Um, why all these things kept falling through over the years? It's a very difficult project to adapt. I mean, in order to make it, you would have to set aside huge amounts of money and a two to two and a half hour movie or longer for a superhero movie starring superheroes that no one who hasn't read the book has ever heard of. There's no Superman, there's no Batman, there's no Spider-Man that is dark and gloomy and includes, spoilers ahoy, uh, the complete destruction of a huge chunk of New York City. Right, that was why I warned up at the top of the show. It's sort of the (laughs) ultimate spoiler. Oh, and the world ends in nuclear Armageddon. Okay, right. And so, uh, and I mean, it's not the kind of movie that is easy to imagine making money. Um, And it's the kind of movie that it's very, very hard to convince a risk-averse studio that it is worth making. Um, But so Zack Snyder, who was the director of The 300, and what else has Zack mm -hmm. Snyder done? He directed The Dawn of the Dead remake and 300. Those are the two movies he had directed previous to 
uh, Watchmen. So he must but, have done some some serious fancy dancing to get his hands on such a coveted project. Well, it was the success of 300 that caused him to be able to do it. And specifically, it was the way in which 300 was a success, which is that it took a previously little-known graphic novel, translated it almost scene by scene and image by image to the screen, and made hundreds of millions of dollars. See, and that... This is what annoys me about Zack Snyder, which we'll get into later, but I feel like everything that's that's original and fresh and interesting in The Watchmen is, in fact, not original. It's a direct quote from the book, which I discovered after finishing the book this morning. Like, it was right. sort of well, like every single line that, that you thought, hey, that's a pretty good line, was Alan Moore's line, in fact. Sure. And But what irritates you sure pleases fans of the graphic novel. Right. Um, and, and, and I think that the faithfulness, of the visual faithfulness, at least, of this, of this story to the book will probably please fans a lot. Whether it will please people who aren't fans and draw a lot of people into the theaters is, is another question. But let's, let's right. get to the story, such as it is. I mean, sure. it's, it's really dense, and I don't think we can cover everything here. It's set in a um, an alternate version, 1985 New York City, um, one in which costumed heroes do exist um, and have existed for years and years and years. And Nixon is still a, president, right? As a result, history has been very different. Nixon is still president because uh, superheroes helped win Vietnam. Vietnam is America's 51st state. Nixon has is in the middle of his fifth term. In 1977, according to this world, costumed heroes, a.k.a. vigilantes, were outlawed, um, and they now live undercover. Some of them still fight crime but evade the police. Some of them have just retired. And they were retired. outlawed essentially because they had started to turn into sort of roving gangs of, of dubious morality. Is that the idea? And because uh, the public turned against them be- because of the brutality of some of their methods and because of just general public sentiment against vigilanteism. And so we join a group of several costumed heroes and ex-costumed heroes in a 1985 with the world at the brink of nuclear war. One of them has been killed, a, a hero named The Comedian, um, who for years has been an undercover operative for the U.S. government. He's been killed, and another um, costumed hero, a, a very unhinged case named Rorschach, uh, believes that someone is picking off costumed heroes. Someone is picking off all these ex superheroes one by one. And so the movie explores he and other heroes uh, regaining their mojo um, as they look into this possible plot to murder costumed heroes and discovering that it goes far bigger than they ever could have imagined. I guess, I mean, that's the plot in the thumbnail, and it sort of spins crazily out of control from there, from Earth to Mars to Antarctica to New York, um, all against the backdrop of a ticking clock of doomsday as nuclear Armageddon approaches. All right. And could there be a better stopping point for a message from our sponsor than nuclear Armageddon approaching? So let's take a If you're worried about nuclear Armageddon, try (laughs) dial soap. All right. From nuclear Armageddon to a message from our sponsor, uh, as we've mentioned on the last few spoiler special podcasts, we now have a great sponsorship relationship with Audible.com, which is the Internet's largest purveyor of recorded audio entertainment, audio books, basically. You can sign up for a one book a month membership at www.audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. And even if you decide to cancel your membership, you can still hold on to that one book for free. And Dan, you said you had a recommendation based on the theme of our of our spoiler today. Well, one of the great novels of the last 10 years, which is available on Audible, I'm told, is uh, Michael Chabon's The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, which um, continued the the introduction of superheroes into the literary canon that many believe Watchmen began. It's a fictionalized story of two great comic book creators of the 40s and 50s um, and their uh, 
their 20th century as it reflects uh, America's 20th century. Um, It won the Pulitzer Prize and is a really fantastic novel. It sounds like it really does have a, a close relationship with Watchmen, too, because I love something that, that happened. It's, it's, it's pretty successfully done in the opening credit sequence of the movie, but it's really well done in the book, I think, which is this sort of generational divide between the old generation of 30s and 40s superheroes and then these these new 80s superheroes that are the heroes of this book. I, I thought that was really, really well um, sketched in that in that beautiful credit sequence to the movie. Right. Um, Which and that quickly is, went downhill from there, I <laughs> Certainly, the book and movie both create a pretty convincing alternate reality, I think. And that is one of the strengths of the movie, I think, is in its, its production design and its attention to detail. Yeah, like the um, way that those early sequences in the credit in the credits looked almost like a, a faded old comic book with these great kind of tableau vivants and washed, washed out colors. I love that. Right. All, the, all these photographs that have been taken throughout sort of the history of comic books, uh, of these costumed heroes, excuse me, um, both good and bad, uh, as we see sort of the rise and fall of the age of the of the superhero in this alternate um, world of Watchmen. Well, let's talk first a couple, just about a couple of successful sequences or what you think works well in the movie before we can get to the many things I think that don't. Sure, I mean fans of the book will be pleased to know I think that a lot of the a lot of the sort of most beloved um, or most memorable moments in the book are actually handled really very, very well in this movie. And they're handled well in in part because of Zack Snyder's faithfulness to the, the rhythm and texture of those scenes. Sort of the prototypical example that I would give is, is the long sequence um, in the middle of the movie in which Dr. Manhattan, played by Billy Crudup, goes to Mars. Dr. Manhattan, for those who don't know, is a is the only true superhero in the story in that he has actual superhuman powers. He suffered an accident in a nuclear testing lab um, that turned him blue and omnipotent and uh, and enormous um, and all powerful and, and naked and naked, yes, um, with a surprisingly large blue wang, which is, um, and, which is surprisingly on view during the movie. I guess the movie's going to yes. be rated R, right? Yes, they knew it was going to be rated R, and um, and there were many promises made by the production early on that um, Doctor Manhattan's wang would be on full display. And is it ever? And is it ever? Um, Billy Crudup's agent should get a bonus for that, I think. Um, but, but I think that Billy Crudup is completely digitized in this movie, right? He's almost unrecognizable, except for he is. I mean, his his face is giving the performance, but he's totally digitized. Other than that, but the sequence that I'm referring to is a long sequence in which Doctor Manhattan, feeling um, separated from humanity, flees to Mars and looks back on his life and the way and what turned him into what he has become. And it's a very intricate sequence of flashbacks within flashbacks uh, and voiceover narration. And it's actually very well handled in a way very similar to the the very beloved and famous section of the graphic novel that tells that same story in the same way. Um, other major set pieces like... Um, like a dream sequence that um, Night Owl, Patrick Wilson's character, has in which he and another character kiss while an atomic bomb explodes behind them. A very archetypal sequence of the death of Rorschach at the end of the movie. They're they're handled very well, and they're very satisfying moments for people who are fans of the graphic novel because these are scenes that you've read a lot of times. They're scenes that uh, in your sort of aesthetic upbringing have meant a lot to you, and it is clear from this movie that they're handled with... A kind, on a kind of almost reverence that to a fan of the graphic novel is gratifying. To other audience members, they may seem um, superfluous or or um, 
or as if the, these moments are given sort of mythological importance that they don't have for them as viewers. But for a fan of the graphic novel, they're actually quite satisfying. I wonder, as a fan of the graphic novel, how you feel about the casting. Because it sort of struck me that although there's a lot of good performances in this movie, there's not really any one grabby, you know, there's not really any person with star power, except possibly Jackie Earl Haley, who plays Rorschach. Yeah. But Rorschach is always masked. I mean, except for in a very, very short, maybe 10% of his performance, his face is covered with this cloth mask on which these kind of cool, these um, Rorschach blots keep appearing in different patterns. That's like his right. his look, his superhero right. look. But, uh, it, but, but between that and him having this heavily filtered, you know, digitized voice, the performance is almost unrecognizable. And then the moments when the mask comes off and it's Jackie Earl Haley, he's he's gripping. He's very gripping. The casting is wildly uneven in this movie. Um, it, the fact that they were able to cast actual actors in some of the roles as opposed to as in other versions of this movie as it might have been made, just having to cast big stars in every single role is gratifying. And Patrick Wilson gives a, a, actually a, quite a good performance, I think, um, as Dan Dryberg, the night owl, a sort of washed up pudgy ex-superhero who regains his mojo. Jackie Earl Haley is really good, as you have as you have noted in the scenes, especially where we can see his face. And Billy Crudup um, is great, but again, to me, Billy so Krupp heavily digitized really that it's hard to tell it's him. Right, but his but he his performance is given mostly in voice. I mean, he's almost it's almost the performance that you would see in an animated movie, but it's a really great vocal performance. He's really really good, and and so it's gratifying to see how good these actors are because they really have to do a lot of heavy lifting in scenes in which they're opposite, say, Malin Ackerman, who plays Laurie Jupiter, the Silk Spectre, and who gives a truly wooden performance, or, or Matthew Good, who plays Ozymandias, who, um, who is... He was the lead character in Brideshead Revisited last year, and he seems to be playing almost the same role in this movie. Um, a sort of and a pasty... Just a, like a pasty, semi-effete, extremely unthreatening character who is meant to be super smart and in the end is the villain of the piece. But he is really not that intimidating or convincing as a super genius at Yeah, all. completely agree with you. And when I say star power, I don't mean that, you know, I expected superstars in every role. But I completely agree that Matthew Good and Malin Agerman of the, of the sort of main superheroes were the least interesting. I was always happy when Carla Gugino was on screen. I don't know if that's yeah. how you say her last name. Yeah. As the, the mother of the Silk Spectre. Is that the mm. main woman? Right. Yes. And she was the original Silk Spectre, and then her daughter becomes the Silk Spectre in this new generation of superheroes. Uh, in fact, she feels pushed into it by her mother, who has always lived for being a superhero, despite the grief that it brought to her life. I love the way that the, being a superhero sort of becomes this, you know, this question of, of the the struggle between, you know, like the, the work-life balance or whatever, like be a right. superhero or have a family. Right. Um, all right. So we've talked about some of the stuff that works. I also want to throw out a couple of my favorite lines, which are, as I said earlier, lifted straight from the novel. I was really happy that somebody got to say in voiceover, the city was like an abattoir full of retarded children. <laughs> because <laughs> you just, you can't read that and not want to hear it said in some sort right. of growling noir voiceover by Jackie or right. Haley. I right. was a little bit disappointed that the very first line of the movie was not the first line of the book, which I would imagine is probably a famous first line. I have it, it right is. here. Dog carcass in the alley this morning. Tire tread in stomach. It's the beginning of a diary entry by Rorschach. This city is afraid of me. I have seen its true face. It is a very famous opening line. Um, they made the probably wise choice in the long run to open the movie with scenes that set up the world of the movie as opposed to dropping you right into Rorschach's brain, which I think would have been pretty unnerving 
uh, in a movie and and made it really really tough for non fans to get into it. And as you said, the beginning the, is pretty cannily constructed because even if you don't know the novel, you do you do get drawn in. I think you start to get lost later when you know we're up on Mars with Doctor Manhattan inside that sort of strange revolving glass chandelier spaceship or whatever. Right. But, but uh, but the beginning is quite tight. All right, let's get to some of the stuff that doesn't work at all. And I'm going to throw out my least favorite thing about the movie and see what you think of it. This was even more true of the three the 300, um, Zack Snyder's earlier movie. But I really think the violence in this movie is over the top. And I don't say that as someone who thinks that you know no movie should contain violence like fight sequences or blood and guts or anything like that. But there's something kind of perverted about the way Zack Snyder films violence that really really bothers me. It's also lovingly shot in glorious slow motion close up that it. It truly is over the top and and unnecessary and ridiculous. And whenever and an action sequence begins, you just sort of brace yourself because you know it's going to be very long, very violent, that somebody's limbs are going to get wrenched in the wrong direction with a really right. loud cracking sound. And even in a cartoonish context, it's just – it's really grueling. And in fact – and and boring. And I mean my if I had to – Make you know if I had been the studio executive watching this movie, and, and if I had had the guts to say this to my cash cow Zack Snyder, I mean the the one piece of advice that the one sh- edit that I wish they had made, the one change I wish they had made is even if they had left all these brutal action sequences in, if they had just put them at regular speed instead of at horrible slow slow motion, they would have been easier to take. They would have been way less boring, and the movie would have been two hours and fifteen minutes instead of two hours and forty five minutes. And as a result, much tighter and better. And yeah, it's so, actually interesting that in, in, in something with this dense of a story, I mean, the novel is really embedded story within embedded story. And yet what takes most of the time in the movie is just padding of these basically identical fight sequences that you right. could be that could be trimmed down to, to far less. I think they would be far scarier if trimmed down to less as well, because the movie doesn't wouldn't just sort of stop and go into this sadistic sort of boring mode, you know, and then, right. have to, and then have to get the momentum all going again. Right. It's like I hate these action sequences for the same reason that people hate musicals, hate musicals. Because you they know, stop the action. Because they stop the action to sing. And this, Zack Snyder stops the, stops the action for these big production numbers. It's just that they have snapping bones and cracking necks instead of, you know – Singing verses in the rain. and choruses, right? Okay, but it's so, still, but it does the exact same thing. It stops the movie dead every single time. We won't get into the fact that you happen to love musicals, which seems completely to contradict what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> so, so then let's talk a little bit about the music in the movie, which I think both of you, you and I, were also rolling our eyes like crazy at the music. For one thing, the music rights must have cost a fortune because there's what four Bob Dylan songs. Sure, there's Bob Dylan, there's Leonard Simon Cohen. Garfunkel, there's Leonard twice, Leonard Cohen twice. Basically, in in every moment. When if you were thinking about what song you would play in a scene and you when you were 15 years old and could only think of the most obvious classic rock choices, these are the songs you would have chosen. So for the comedian's funeral, it's the sounds of silence. And for, uh, you know, for the Vietnam War scene, it's Ride of the Valkyries. That was perhaps the most intellectually dishonest music choice of all. I actually couldn't believe it was being used. Right of the Valkyries, a straight lift from Coppola. It was just horrifying. Right. Well, I mean, and and when the... When the main laughs in your movie come from the obviousness of your movie choices, you perhaps have made some over-obvious choices in in the scoring. And what about using Leonard film. Cohen's Hallelujah during the big sex scene? That was just, I feel like the song has been besmirched. I just want to scrub that image from my mind. I didn't really want to look at Patrick Wilson's Gluteus Maximus while hearing that song. It rendered the most over-the-top hilarious scene in the book even more hilarious, which I thought was maybe impossible 
but to have Hallelujah singing during the um, climax of that overheated sex scene definitely um, got big, big laughs in the house that I was seeing that in. I mean, that the scene was not treated with reverence at all by my, by my crowd, at least. That was a really, really uncomfortable sex scene. So, okay, so <laughs> let's let's quickly get to the end because we do want to talk about the end of the world and maybe compare the end of the world in the book and in the movie. I mean, which maybe could get us a little bit as we close up into the politics of this world, too, which in the book, I think, make a lot more sense. But I don't really know what to make of the political allegory that's being told in the movie. We're in a no. Cold War, right? A Cold War that seems to have lasted, you know, generations. Right. And and then the Cold War ends because you want to take The Cold War ends because the the idea of of Watchmen and the way that Ozymandias becomes a villain in Watchmen is an idea that has been used many times since then and probably was used many times before, which is that a, a person saves the world by destroying a tiny part of it, which is to say Ozymandias gets everyone to stop – gets the Russians and the Americans to stop threatening nuclear war by presenting an artificial outside threat. In the book, it's the threat of alien invasion. He fakes an alien invasion that destroys a huge part of New York, um, and immediately the Americans and the Russians band together to fight this imagined alien menace and give up on – nuclear war. It's actually a very Cold War logic, right? We had to destroy the village in order to save it. Right, exactly. In the movie, the uh, aliens, which in the book famously take the form of a a hilarious telepathic giant squid. With a clone Um, psychic's brain. I wish that had stayed in the movie because you just, you have to to say those words once again. But (laughs) even that that Uh, detail was, I think, too absurd even to make it into the movie. Yes. uh, I have to say, I I am very thankful that that did not make it into the movie because I just don't think it would have played. And in the movie, it is. But Pacino could have played the squid. He could have played the squid in his latest Oscar-winning role. But uh, in the movie, it has changed into Ozymandias fools the world into thinking that Dr. Manhattan has turned against humanity uh, and is and has destroyed several world cities. In fact, I think like 15 cities have the equivalent of like nuclear bombs go off in them, um, set off uh, by Ozymandias faking that Dr. Manhattan did it. Um, and but the idea is the same, that by presenting an outside threat to the world – um, he can scare it into peace. And in both the book and the movie, it's presented as successful. I mean, and that is sort of the Alan Moore's great joke of the book is that is that the villain's plan works. And because the villain's plan works, peace reigns and the world is made a better place. And the superheroes who know about the plan um, and who survive the end of the book and of the movie just have to shut up about it. You know, they cannot do good. They cannot stop the villain. Um, His plan is successful, and they can't say anything about it because to expose it would be to render the deaths of millions pointless, even more pointless than they already were. Well, and to me, in the book, that, that, leaves, th- that leaves the last frame in this space of kind of moral ambiguity, right? Like the, the bad guy is sort of the good guy, the guy who had to kill millions of people in order to, to create an accord between the Americans and Russians. Right. And Rorschach, who's been, you know, one of the most amoral of the, of the superheroes all through and thinks nothing of, you know, killing anyone who stands in his way or just mm-hmm. killing for the sheer pleasure of it, is the one who's trying to get back and, you know, tell everyone what really happened. Right. His famous line um, in the graphic novel right before he dies is uh, to never compromise, not even in the face of Armageddon. And to Rorschach, the world must know what Ozymandias did. And as a result, Rorschach has to die. Dr. Manhattan kills him to save world peace, because if he tells this story and people believe him, the ruse will fall through. 
And, and I don't know what it says about the politics of this book or the politics of Alan Moore or the politics of Zack Snyder. It's uh, it's as a political allegory, it's pretty muddy other than to just be a great joke on the traditional way that comic books end with the villain vanquished and good ascendant. So do you think that that moral ambiguity at the end of the movie leaves a, a good setup for a sequel, Dan? Do you think that there's Watchmen 2 in the works? Uh, it's been promised that there never will be a Watchmen 2, but of course that's not up to any of the people who've promised it. It's up to You Warner mean it Brothers. was promised to Alan Moore, who didn't want was, his book to be further prostituted? No, it was promised to the fans, who I think would view a Watchmen 2 as uh, an abomination. But certainly... Sort of like uh, Moby Dick 2 or something like that? Like Moby Dick 2, yeah. I mean, or uh, I'm trying to think of like a good, like Hamlet 2. I mean, to comic book fans, a Watchmen 2 Wasn't would be a like a Hamlet, Hamlet 2. Wasn't there a movie called Hamlet 2 last they're year probably, Steve Coogan? I, uh, I believe that there was, yes. And so uh, you can make a comedy with Steve Coogan as Alan Moore um, in a wacky fake Watchmen 2. But to make a real Watchmen 2, I think, would be viewed as a real betrayal of the property by everyone. I'm sure that if this is successful... Warner Brothers will do its best to find a way to make a Watchmen 2, and they'd be foolish not to. Alan Moore will continue to have nothing to do with it. Zack Snyder will have nothing to do with it, which I don't know that I would have a real problem with necessarily. But it's but the idea of the movie is that if any of these characters ever came back and fought again, it would mean that the the lessons of the first movie had not been learned and that the piece that ended the first movie has fallen apart and maybe they will make a movie out of that you know and i i'd love to conclude if i could with a a minor defense of Zack snyder which is to say that you and i both hated nearly everything that he brought to this movie stylistically but i do think it is worth congratulating Zack snyder in some respect for having the the weight in hollywood and the ability to get a lot of the stuff that is good about this movie in because the stuff that is best about this movie, as you say, is the stuff that comes straight from the graphic novel. And the and those who criticize it for being too loyal to the graphic novel, I think in this case they're wrong. I think that the, the things that are best about it are the things that are foolishly or slavishly loyal to the graphic novel. And those are the kinds of things that never would have made it into this movie in, in any of its previous iterations. In any of the director's who were thinking about making this movie, any of the stars who were attached to it, uh, the stuff that is the best about this movie probably never would have made it into those versions because they're the first things that studios cut when they have the power to cut them. Long, talky sequences. Long sequences that jump us out of the plot onto Mars. The death of major characters who the audience has come to appreciate at the end of movies. Those things don't make it through studio development processes usually. Um, and that they remain in here is a testament to Zack Snyder's weight. The things that are horrible about the movie are a testament to Zack Snyder's bad taste. But you take, I guess you take what you can get when you're a fan of the book in this case. Yeah. I'm with you. Hooray for slavish adaptations if, if, <laughs> <laughs> if the good parts are what, what are the slavish parts. Right. Well, Dan, thanks a lot for coming in for this Slate spoiler special. My pleasure. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.